Now we're going to read from God's Word. We're in the book of Genesis, and I'm going to read Genesis 8, 18, through chapter 9, 17. Genesis 8, 18, through 9, 17. So Noah went out, and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. Every animal, every creeping thing, every bird, and whatever creeps on the earth, according to their families, went out of the ark. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took of every clean animal and of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And the Lord smelled a soothing aroma. Then the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground for man's sake, although the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. Nor will I again destroy every living thing as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, winter and summer and day and night shall not cease. So God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And the fear of you and the dread of you shall be on every beast of the earth and on every bird of the air, and on all that move on the earth, and on all the fish of the sea. They are given into your hand. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. I have given you all things, even as the green herbs. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. Surely, for your lifeblood, I will demand a reckoning. From the hand of every beast I will require it, and from the hand of man... From the hand of every man's brother, I will require the life of man. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God he made man, and as for you, be fruitful and multiply. Bring forth abundantly in the earth and multiply in it. Then God spoke to Noah and to his sons with him, saying, And as for me, behold, I establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the cattle, and every beast on the earth with you. Of all that go out of the ark, every beast of the earth, thus I establish my covenant with you. Never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. Never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, This is the sign of the covenant which I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you. For perpetual generations I set my rainbow in the cloud, and it shall be for the sign of the covenant between me and the earth. It shall be when I bring a cloud over the earth that the rainbow shall be seen in the cloud, and I will remember my covenant which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. The waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. The rainbow shall be in the cloud, and I will look on it to remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. And God said to Noah, This is the sign of the covenant which I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. This is the word of the Lord. 
Well, now we resume the account about Noah. Two-thirds of the way through his life, Noah has to start over from scratch. And it's not just Noah, it's the entire planet. All of humanity has to start over. But before Noah, before Noah, in, in humanity's first go-around, they, they lived for a millennium and a half, humanity became horrible. They became horrible. Genesis 6-5 told us, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And so, as we have seen in the previous weeks, the Lord destroys all people, all land animals, in the worldwide flood. But Noah, his family, the animals in the ark, they all survive. They all survive in the ark. And now in our passage, the flood is over, the destruction is past, and now they all leave the ark and they enter the world, and it's time for them to start over. And here is this, this righteous person, Noah. He's starting his life over with nothing. What's the first thing that Noah does? What's the first thing he does starting with nothing? It's not building a house. It's not scouting out the land. Noah worships. Noah worships. Verse 20, Noah built an altar to the Lord and took of every clean animal and of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And so we've got here a rare glimpse into the mind of God. Verse 21, and the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma. Then the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground for man's sake although the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth, nor will I again destroy every living thing as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, winter and summer and day and night shall not cease. And so Noah worships and God is pleased to receive worship. He's, he's pleased with Noah's impulse on the first day of the rest of history to approach God and to offer life. He, God is pleased with Noah's primary orientation to the Lord. Noah's got nothing in his pockets. He's got a mind filled with a million things that he needs to do. But first, Noah will worship. And that's what you all are doing, you who are here, to worship on the first day of the week. You've got a whole week ahead of you, a zillion things to keep track of. Whether you're here worshiping you're online, you're attending, you're offering up worship as the first thing to start your week. And God is pleased with that. If you put the worship of God at the top of the list, even if you've lost everything, even if you've got a million other things to do, worship connects with God and it pleases him. But there's more in the mind of God here. Verse 21, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground for man's sake, nor will I again destroy every living thing. God determines within himself never to flood the earth again and to destroy all living things again. And here, we've got part of an answer to a question that we ask ourselves. And, and whether you're a, a believer or you're an unbeliever, maybe you ask this, this very common question, how can God be good and control all things 
and yet allow evil to continue to exist in the world. Because, because since he's good and he has the power to stop evil, why does he not end evil and, and suffering? Really that question, it can, it can be. It can be an accusation. Sometimes it's used as a justification to reject God. But, but here's the observation from our text about this question. It's not a full answer to the question, but it's a relevant observation. God is good. God holds all power. And once in history, God did end all evil. And, and to do that, he flooded the earth. He destroyed all evil. He destroyed all living things. And, and the good God did stop, and he did remove all evil. But to end evil, he had to eradicate all people whose hearts were continually evil. Well, that was then. But now, here's what God has determined. Here, after the flood, he says, I will never do that again. So here's the observation. Here's the observation. Why? Why does our good God, who can do whatsoever he wills, why does he not end evil and suffering? Because it's because he did it once. He did once end evil. And he's promised never to do that again. So long as the days and the seasons continue on the earth. And so now we're living in a time of, of God's divine restraint. So with that context, let's look at the rest of the passage. And we see three things here. First of all, there's the evil that God sees. The evil that God sees. And then secondly, the promise that God makes. And then thirdly, the sign that makes God not remember. The evil that God sees, the promise that God makes, and the sign that makes God not remember. Let's start with the evil that God sees. Verse 21, as God is, is taking pleasure, the, the, the burnt offering is rising up and, and uh, it's portrayed anthropomorphically, God is taking pleasure in the, in the aroma of, of this sacrifice that Noah has offered. And he promises that he himself, he promises to himself, he's not going to destroy all life on earth again. But did you notice what God also embeds there in, in this statement, what he says about human nature there? Verse 21, he says, and this is just, it's, it's in passing, it's part of the, the promise that he makes to himself. Verse 21, the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. The intentions of, of the human heart are evil, even from our childhood. Now, the ramifications of that, that that is still part of the picture, the ramifications of that should shape your perspective on life in this world. And so, first of all, it tells you that people are going to let you down. People have evil in their hearts, and so they, they will let you down. Or worse, people will hurt you. These words, they're universal. He says here, all people are evil, even from their childhood. It means your son, your beautiful baby boy, your beautiful baby girl, they have evil in them. It means your mom and your dad, as great as they may have been, they have evil in them. It means your best friend, it means your boyfriend, it means every political candidate, everyone has evil inside. Now there are degrees of evil, but humans, it's, it's, a, it's a universal infection on the human race. And so don't be shocked when someone that you trust, when someone that you love 
does great evil. And, and it means don't put people on a pedestal. Even Noah, this righteous man, this friend of God, he brings terrible shame on himself when he drinks too much, as we'll see later. So first of all, it tells you people will let you down. Secondly, it tells you this. It tells you that changing the scenery does not change the heart. Changing the scenery will not change the heart of a person. And, and so the scenery was changed. God has wiped off the entire surface of the world. He's purged it of all the evil, purged it of all the violence. He's eradicated all the systems and all the structures that were made by evil. He's eliminated all people who were evil. But the heart of humanity is still evil. Now, maybe you've got trouble with your own personal evil. You sense that, yeah, I've I've got these parts of me that they're bad. They need to change. Your your self-control issues, whether it's with with substance, whether it's with, with your spending, whether it's with screens, or maybe it's your anger, your, your hatred, your bitterness. And, and you think, if I, if I could just make a, a better schedule, if I could just have a new schedule, that might help. It might help. But it doesn't alter your heart. It's just changing the scenery. Or maybe if I, if I will change the kind of company that I keep, if I, if I change my friends, or if I get a better job, All of that might be of some help, and some of those might be good things to do. But it's just changing the scenery. It can't remove the evil from your heart. You're still the same character in the play, even if they've changed the set. This is true not just at the individual level, with the things in us that need to change. This is true also at a societal level. And and of course, there are things in society that need to change, that should be changed, in order to address the great evils, the great suffering in society. There are laws that it would be good if they were to pass. There are improvements in education for those who are disadvantaged, and that would be good. But as as important, as necessary as those things are, the evil in the hearts of people, they'll still end up soiling the fresh sheets. The wrong desires, the sin in the heart of all people, it will still bring us ruin one way or another one day. The evil inside cannot be changed by merely rearranging furniture outside. Now, we should pursue good. You remember the command in in Jeremiah 29 when God's people were in a wicked, conquering, oppressive nation, and while they were there, God told them, do good for the city. Settle down, live there, and do good. Pursue the peace of the city and its welfare. And so it's not pointless to do that. We should do that. But we understand that rearranging the outside still doesn't change the inside of the human heart. And so this gives you this perspective on evil and on suffering in the world, and you expect to find it. You're not surprised when it emerges. You address it, but you expect you can't eliminate it unless something changes the human nature. And that's why Jesus tells us, the poor you will always have with you. But even having said that, he says still, give to the poor. Luke 14, 13, when you give a feast, invite the poor, the maimed, the lame, and the blind. Now there's so much more we could say about that, but let's keep moving here. There's the evil that God sees. Next, let's look at the promise that God makes. The promise that God makes. And here, in the face of of evil that's entrenched in the heart of human nature, in the face of that, we see the generous goodness of God. 
We see evil in the heart of all people, an evil that ruined the world and is capable of ruining the world again, but we also see God's great goodness. It still remains. It's still there. And it's, it's essential that you see this. In the text, it's essential that you see this in your own life. Look at God's goodness in his charter for humanity. He gives it here in verses 1 through 7. God gives, again, his charter for humanity, and in it we see his goodness. Here, God renews the charter that he, he, he has the, the, the plan for humanity, the, the, um, the, the, um, the uh, I just blanked out on the word, um, the uh, mandate that he has for us. It's very similar to what we saw at the original creation when the hearts of, of people were not evil. He gives a very similar charter now. Recall Genesis 1, 26. God made humans in his own image, male and female. They were created in the image of God. And then Genesis 1, 28. God blessed them. God willed goodness and flourishing for them. That's what he wanted for them when he blessed them. But that was when man and woman were good. And now? What about now? After the fall, after the flood, man and woman are not good. The imagination of our hearts are evil, even from our childhood. But he says, look at, the, look at the goodness of God. Look at the grace of God here. Genesis 9, verse 1, it says, So God blessed Noah and his sons. Noah, his sons, together they comprise the fullness of all humanity to come. Humanity, who now every imagination is evil, from their hearts. But God still blesses us. God is good. God issues, he's issuing a well-being pronouncement. It's as if to say, it's as if God is saying, I wish you well, and I will work for your well-being. I'll work for your well-being, you who have evil continually in your hearts from your youth. Isn't, Isn't God good to the undeserving Now, look at this renewed charter that God gives in verses 1 through 7. It's very similar to the original charter, the original mandate. Verse verse 1, verse 7, they both say, Be fruitful and multiply. Bring forth abundantly in the earth and multiply in it. What What he's saying there? What he's saying is, try to be married if you can. Try to have children if you can. I bless you. I bless that effort. It's still in the offing from God. He, he wants that for us. But there are two notable dif- differences from the original charter that he gave to humanity. First of all, there's this difference. Instead now of, of having dominion over the creatures, which he said the first time, he doesn't say it that way here. Instead of having dominion over the creatures, we see in verse 2 that now the creatures will fear you and the creatures will be food for you. Before, humans ate fruit and plants. Now, the animals will avoid you and you will eat meat their meat for food. But, but God gives a very big caveat in verse 4. Not with the blood. Not with the blood still in the meat. The blood symbolizes life. And life in the sight of God, life is precious. Life is to be treasured and preserved. And so this brings the second big difference. There isn't a renewal of, of have dominion. There's now fear of, of the animal's This is the second big difference from the original charter. Verses 5 and 6, he says, all life is important. He brings this out in a way it was never spoken explicitly in the original mandate and charter. He says, human life, life is important and human life is even more important. Verse 5, 
Surely, for your lifeblood, I will demand a reckoning. Verse 6, whoever sheds a person's blood, by a person that blood will be shed, because God made people in his own image. In this second charter, this is a difference. God prohibits murder. And more than that, he also says you are responsible for each other. A life taken by murder requires that the murderer must pay with his own life. He says you're responsible for one another. You'll remember, after the first family received this charter from God, Cain, the first human son, murdered Abel, the second human son. And Cain, when he was caught and confronted, Cain asked, am I my brother's keeper? Well, both then and now, God says, yes, you are your brother's keeper. He's saying humans are responsible for fellow humans. He says, for your lifeblood, I will demand a reckoning. And the one who spills blood, his blood must be spilled. So it, it is your business. It is your business when someone is abused, when someone is beat up, when someone is killed. This is a communal instruction that God gives us. And, and it, says, it says something about capital punishment. And, and even more broadly, it says something about our mutual responsibility for the lives of, of one another. That's part of our, our new charter in these days of Noah. Why? Why are we responsible for the lives of one another? It's because he, he invokes here the image of God. Because assault on a woman is assault on the image of God, he says. It's because striking a man is striking the image of God. And the blood, when the blood is shed, God sees it. The blood cries out from the ground to God. And so, and so we, we hear this and, and we realize we have responsibility for each other. God sees all this. God, God has issued to us as a community, a human community, responsibility for the other human beings. And, and we could think here in our, in our nation, we've got blood on our hands. We've got blood on our hands for millions of, of aborted children. And, and we've got blood on our hands also for things like the, the Tulsa race massacre and, and for the thousands of black lynchings that were never prosecuted. But, but this makes the promise of God, though, the gracious promise of God, even greater. So there's the, there's the responsibility, there's the heavy charge he brings of the guilt that we have for the blood that's spilled, but it makes his gracious promise even greater. Verses 8 through 17 were introduced to the, the biggest kind of promise God can make. We're introduced to God's covenant, his covenant with all creatures. Now, as we've said in the past, when, when the Bible speaks about covenant, and it frequently brings up covenant, speaks of covenant, it's, it's a key theme in the scriptures, but covenant, in the, in the biblical sense, covenant is it's not like anything really in our day, in our time, in our culture. And this is the first explicitly identified covenant in the Bible, here, in our passage today. There are several more covenants in the Bible that, that keep moving forward the big story of the Bible. There's the, this covenant with Noah, and then there's the covenant with Abraham, and then after that, there's a covenant with Moses, and then the covenant with David, 
And then there's the new covenant through Christ. But let's look at three aspects of this covenant, this first covenant that's explicitly presented, this covenant with Noah. And we're going to see three things that, that are here in the text. There's, there are the parties in that covenant. There's the promise in that covenant. And then there's the sign of the covenant. First of all, the parties in the covenant. A covenant, in, in the way that the Bible uses it, and you want to just think of covenant here, think of it as a technical term. Don't, don't try to map it to like, well, I live in a, a homeowner's association and we have these covenants. It, it's just not like that. A covenant in biblical usage, it's a unilaterally imposed relationship with blessings and consequences and commitments. It's a unilaterally imposed relationship with blessing with consequences, and with commitments. It's unilaterally imposed. That means one side brings the covenant to the lesser party. The greater side brings covenant obligations and promises to the, to the lesser side. In those days, it might have been a conquering king who comes in and imposes a covenant with blessings, but also stipulations and, and consequences on the people who, whom he has power over. In this case, and in all of the divine covenants, God presents the covenant, God brings the covenant relationship. He is the greater party in the covenant. Now, in this covenant with Noah that, that he brings, who's the other party in God's covenant? Well, it's with Noah, but it's also with all people and with all creatures in the days of Noah and all of their descendants. Now, he repeats this, that the parties will be Noah, all of his sons, and all of their descendants, and all of the living creatures unto all generations. He repeats this multiple times in this passage. Verse 9, God says, as, And as for me, behold, I establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the cattle, and every beast of the earth with you. Of all that go out of the ark, every beast of the earth, the covenants between God and with Noah and all of his sons and descendants and all the animals. This is repeated. The, the, the parties in this covenant is repeated. It's repeated multiple times, not just verse 9, but in verse 12 and in verse 15 and in verse 16 and in verse 16. Like five times he, he, he enumerates these are the parties of this covenant. Now, this is a covenant between God and all humanity and all humanity to come. He says it's for perpetual generations. It's also a covenant between God and all the animals, every living creature. So this covenant, the covenant with Noah, is with all humanity to come and with all animals. Now, if you're listening to this, there's something about this that should feel a little bit uncomfortable in, in our very highly individualistic and very rights-oriented culture to have something imposed on us and not be given the choice to join it or to leave it, to negotiate it or to, 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 to disapprove of some of the stipulations, to have something instituted on us that will bring consequences and obligations for us. When we weren't even born, this was, this was the covenant that was made with us it means this. It means you are a party in this covenant with Noah. You weren't present, but in this covenant and in other covenants of scripture, they involve you. You didn't have a part in the, in the negotiation, but you are a party in this covenant. Now, those are the parties in the covenant. Secondly, let's look at the promises of the covenant. Okay, so you're, you're, you're into this covenant, not even voluntarily. Well, is it a good covenant? 
what are the promises of the covenant. Verse 11, God says, Thus I establish my covenant with you. Here's the promise. Never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. Never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. Here's the promise of God in this covenant. No matter how evil people become, and he says evil is in your hearts. No matter how evil people become, God will not wipe out the world with water. The flood was a one-time event, never to be repeated again. And this covenant comes with the promise of well-being. God, God blessed humanity again in Noah. He, he renews the urging to have families as you're able. And, and he, he renews this promise to give them the, the food that they need. And, and he wants their lives to be protected. And, and it comes with obligations. The, the obligation that's explicitly laid out here is you must not murder. You must not kill each other. And, and you must take responsibility for one another. Those are the obligations that come with this covenant. Now, maybe you look at the mess of the world, the atrocities that are reported to us, and, and, and you're torn up inside as you read about it, as you hear about it, you hear about the suffering. And, and maybe you, you look at the mess of the world and some of it, some of it you even feel polluted by some of it. For, for some of these things, you realize, even if it's just tangentially, You've been part of a warped system that hurts people. Maybe you never intended it, but you are. You're just part of that. Just by your citizenship, maybe. You've got some corporate connection and culpability for the crime that was committed by the whole. But the promises of this covenant are to you. God will not destroy the world. God will not destroy you in a purging flood. You're alive. You you may even have a family. You may even experience the blessing of God in your life, even though your people have hearts filled with evil. Even if you have in your own life a heart that's shot through with, with your own personal evil, God promised himself never to destroy us all again. God promised us in covenant not to destroy us all again in a flood Now, whether you believe it or not, God has made this promise and this blessing to you. Now, thirdly, look at the sign of the covenant. And this is in verses 12 through 17. The sign of this covenant with Noah, verses 12 through 17. Now, covenants, this is another thing that's unique about covenants. Covenants, in in the Bible sense of the term, covenants always have signs. It's not just, it's not merely verbal something visible gets attached to the covenant. To make, to make the verbal tangible, something you can hold on to, something you can see. For instance, later in the Abrahamic covenant, what is the sign? Well, the sign of that covenant is circumcision. And then later on in the Mosaic covenant, what's the sign of that covenant? The sign of that covenant is the Passover meal. And then here in, the, in this covenant with Noah, what is the sign of this covenant? The sign of this covenant is the rainbow in the sky. Now, why, do we, why does God give his covenants visible signs? Well, in some ways, if you think of a, our modern contracts, it, our contracts are not covenant, but they have covenantal aspects to it. Typically, there's a printed contract and you have to put your signature on it. You have to sign it. The verbal, the agreement is made visible and there's a sign, a signature. 
Why do we need a visible sign? Well, it's because covenants with God are forever. They're eternal. And the challenge for us as humans living in, in, in eternity, when we're finite, we tend to forget long-standing things. For instance, our, our, if the Lord puts you into marriage, your marriage vows may be special to you. They may be overwhelmingly beautiful to you on the day that you speak them, you know, for richer or for poorer, in sickness and in health, for better or for worse, till death do we part. And when you say it, you mean it. But one year later, 10 years later, 30 years later, those vows, maybe you can't even remember what you promised. But you might have a sign. You might have a sign. You might have a ring. The sign reminds us that promises were made. The rainbow is this sign to bring remembrance of the promise of the covenant. So that's why God, God brings signs, accompanies his covenants with signs. Verse 13, he says, I set my rainbow in the cloud and it shall be for the sign of the covenant between me and the earth. Now, okay, that's a sign. And this, this is the sign for this covenant. Well, for whom is this sign given? Is this sign given to remind you that God has promised not to flood the earth so that you, living thousands and thousands of years later, will remember the covenant blessings from God? No, the sign is not for you to remember. This sign is for God to remember. Verse 16, God says, the rainbow shall be in the cloud and I will look on it to remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. Verse 14, he says, the rainbow shall be seen in the cloud and I will remember my covenant which is between me and you. The waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. And put this all together. The evil that is in the heart of every person on the planet, the human blood that has been shed over so many years. Why does a God, why does a good God allow evil? Why does he permit evil men to continue? Why does he permit evil men to continue to do evil? Because he remembers his promise. Because the sign of the rainbow causes him to remember what he promised. He will not again stop all evil and remove from the face of the earth all evil in a flood. And that's one of the great things about living here in Tidewater. We are in danger of being flooded. Every time it rains and the wind is blowing in a certain direction and the tide is high, we flood. But you can remember this. God has promised he will not bring the total flood to wipe out all the evil that we have brought onto the earth. But as you, as you look at the sign, as we're brought the sign, we're, we're, we're brought short again and again. We're brought short again and again by the reports that we hear of people that you meet and know who have suffered, who have, have had evil inflicted on them. We have failed. We have failed to keep our side of this covenant. We've failed to preserve human life. And that's, that's part of why we care about abortion. That's part of why we grieve about abortion. That's why we care about racial injustice. 
the commandment to preserve life, we, we sense we haven't kept it. We haven't preserved human life. And so the commandment, though, it's broader than this. It's broader than just prohibiting murder, the, the sixth commandment. The larger catechism is an excellent summary of what the Bible tells you about the commandment not to murder. As it condenses the teaching of scripture, it says this. That commandment, the commandment, thou shalt not murder, it says we're obligated to exert just defense against violence. We're obligated to exert just defense against the unjust taking away the life of any. We're obligated in this commandment, in this obligation, in this covenant, to avoid overuse of food, to avoid overuse of drink, to avoid overuse of substance or sleep or work, to avoid overuse of work, to avoid overuse of fun. That's the larger catechism summary of the sixth commandment. And it also includes, it includes, it says, comforting the distressed. And, and this commandment not to murder obligates us to comfort the distressed and to protect and to defend the innocent. It also involves putting aside revenge. It also forbids oppression and quarreling, striking and wounding one another. That's all part of the sixth commandment. That's all part of the, the obligation that comes with the, the covenant he made with Noah and with all of us. That means when, when we wish for the downfall of another person, it's just it's not right. Remember Proverbs 24, 17. Do not rejoice when your enemy falls and do not let your heart be glad when he stumbles. That's true for your enemies in politics. That's true for your enemies in your office. It's true for your enemies in your family and, and in your, your friendships and your relationships. When you put all that together, though, that commandment, that covers so much. And you realize, I've got blood on my hands. And God sees that blood. And, and, and we saw some other people with blood on their hands, and, and we didn't stop them. And God sees that too. Now, we've looked at the sign of this covenant, the sign that makes God remember his promise. Let's close now with the sign that makes God not remember. Let's close with the sign that makes God not remember. What is God like? What is God really like? People complain that God doesn't stop evil. God doesn't stop suffering. Here's what God is like. Exodus, Ezekiel 33, 11. Say to them, this is the Lord speaking, say to them, as I live, says the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways. For why should you die, O house of Israel? God says, this is what I'm like. I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. And so he calls them, turn away. Turn away from evil. Turn to me and live, he says. Because God is going to finally judge. He will eventually judge. He will destroy. But not all people. Only those whose evil hearts he remembers. Whose evil he sees. But, but doesn't that mean everybody? 
don't all people, even from childhood, isn't that what we said? All people, even from childhood, have evil hearts? Ah, but here's where the change is. There is another covenant, not the covenant with Noah. There's another covenant with another sign. And in this covenant, the new covenant, God takes away that evil heart of stone and he gives you a new heart. He gives you a good heart. He will change you. Not, not just change your circumstances. He might not change your circumstances, but he will change your evil heart. And that new covenant has a sign. And that sign, when God sees it, it makes him not bring to remembrance your evil. Well, what's the sign? What's the sign in this new covenant? That sign is Jesus Christ crucified, risen from the dead in three days. John 2, 18 speaks of it. So the Jews answered and said to Jesus, what sign do you show to us since you do these things? Jesus answered and said to them, destroy this temple. He's talking about his crucifixion. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. That's the sign of this new covenant. When you believe that Jesus is the image of God who was struck down and that Jesus is the man of God whose blood was shed so that your blood won't be shed, it's his cross that is the sign that makes God not remember your evil because God sees the good man, Jesus, when he sees you. If you believe, God sees the good man, Jesus, when he sees you, if you believe. And so we have Hebrews ten sixteen, and, and God says about this new covenant, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their hearts and in their minds. I will write them. Then, he adds, their sins and their lawless deeds, I will remember no more. Wouldn't you want to have that? That your sins and your evil, God will remember no more. He won't see it. Have you entered the new covenant? Have you entered the covenant where God takes your evil heart and, and gives you a good heart? The covenant where, where Jesus becomes your new identity. Well, if you ask him, if you ask him, you can receive it. Well, well how do you ask? Let me just be plain. Here's how you would ask for it. If you don't have this, but you would want this. You say to God, I am evil. I did do evil. I admit it. I turn away from it. God, would you forgive me? Would you cleanse me? Would, would you let Jesus be punished on the cross for me? Would you let me would you let me be seen in the way that you see Jesus, in his goodness? I believe on Jesus. I will follow him. This is for you who are older, you who are children. It's for all who will believe and will ask him. If you have never entered into a covenant with God, today is the day. Don't clean yourself up. It's time to just drop your arguments. Today is the day of your salvation. And if you need help with entering 
into this new covenant, you can ask someone here for help. We're not any better than you. And if you come to him, here's the warmth and here's the welcome from God that you'll find. And with this, we'll close. Isaiah 54, verses 7 through 11. This is what God says. When you have come to him in this new covenant, he says, for a mere moment, I have forsaken you, but with great mercies, I will gather you. With a little wrath, I hid my face from you for a moment, but with everlasting kindness, I will have mercy on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer, for this is like the waters of Noah to me. For as I have sworn that the waters of Noah would no longer cover the earth, so have I sworn that I would not be angry with you nor rebuke you. For the mountains shall depart and the hills be removed, but my kindness shall not depart from you, nor shall my covenant of peace be removed, says the Lord who has mercy on you. O you afflicted one, tossed with tempest and not comforted, behold, I will lay your stones with colorful gems and lay your foundations with sapphires. Let's pray. O Lord, we confess that we are evil and we still have, even those of us who believe, we have the remnants of that evil that that rise up against us and even threaten to take over everything. But we also have the sign of the Son and we know that by what Jesus has done, we are reconciled to you. We are forgiven and when you see us somehow, because of what Christ has done, you're pleased with us, as you were pleased with the sacrifice that Noah offered on that first day. And so we come to you and we are grateful. And we offer ourselves to you again. And we pray that we would find the sweetness in the sacrifice of Christ that you find in it. He is our beloved. He is our only hope. He is our sweet Savior. We love him. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.